Love, touch, speech, movement, consciousness. What do they all have in common? I'm Anna Machen and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. I've spent the last year going behind the scenes of cutting-edge neuroscience research, unravelling the complexities of how our brains grow, change and ultimately die. From big questions... Many answers have been given, right, over the last 2,000 years, mostly in philosophy... ...to small voices... <laughs> ...and new treatments. Within the four sessions across two weeks... The pain had completely been eliminated. We've explored how our brains underpin our experiences and feelings, how they make us who we are. And in this special episode, we're meeting an award-winning neuroscientist to explore the fundamentals that underpin how our brains really are wired. Plus, we'll be reflecting on some of our favourite moments from the show. This is How We're Wired. Throughout this series, we've talked a lot about nerve cells, or neurons, the fundamental units of our brains and nervous systems. We're probably all picturing a similar image. A spiky cell body with a long, wiry projection, called an axon, extending out to make connections and transmit information to other cells. The thing is, although the brain can look like a complicated mess of wires and connections to us on the outside, when the brain is growing during development, the neurons themselves know very well who they are supposed to connect with and how they are supposed to send out their axons to go make those connections. It's just taken scientists a little while to figure it out. Oh gosh, I've been working in neuroscience for... I think about over 40 years now. That's Professor Christine Holt. She's a developmental neuroscientist at the University of Cambridge and is one of the scientists who has been absolutely instrumental in helping us understand how our brains go through this process of wiring up. She's also one of the recipients of the Brain Prize 2023, the world's biggest neuroscience award, our producer Eva spoke with Christine to learn more about how we're wired and hear about her career in neuroscience. My interest started as an undergraduate when I was at Sussex University doing biological sciences. And there was one particular course where we learned about how the eye connects with the brain. And I learned during that course that there is a very accurate spatial map that's made in the brain from the eye. And we learned about those connections. And it was clear that it wasn't understood how those connections are actually made in the first place. And that's something that got me very interested. I just couldn't understand how that happened. And so I went on to do a PhD at King's College, London, looking into that whole problem of how the visual system gets connected. So can you explain to me a little bit, what do you mean by a spatial map between the eye and the brain there? Yeah, so as we look around our visual world, it's not jumbled, it's very sort of spatially organised. And the signals from the visual image are preserved spatially in the brain, in that the cells in the eye send an 
axon, which is a very long process, into the brain. And the ends of those processes, the terminals, make synapses in a very particular part of the brain. And neighboring cells in the eye send their terminals to positions that are neighboring in the brain so that the target neurons that they make synapses with are next door to each other. So that an image that you see, you know, in the outside world, all the points are represented next door to each other in the brain. So the electrical signals coming in spatially preserve that map of the outside world. I see. So it's kind of like in the eye, you have everything lined up in a certain way. Then all those cells are sending out their projections, their axons, these tiny little wires out to the brain to find their partners. And actually all of those partners are also lined up in the same way. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. And so when you started your studies, how that mapping occurs, that wasn't fully understood? That wasn't fully understood. And it also wasn't understood how those wires, how those axons get to their targets, because it's a very long distance that these little tiny, tiny parts of a cell have to travel. It moves through many, many different territories in different parts of the brain that it doesn't go to. And then finally, it homes in, navigates to its correct target. And then within that target, within that area of the brain, it has to find the exact right cell to make contact with. And as you know, there are billions of neurons in the brain, billions of neurons doing the same task. And this whole task, this whole process of navigation is done these long-distance connections anyway, is done in the early brain as the human brain is developing within the first few months of the fetus developing. So all of this sort of activity is happening very early in life. And those axons actually have to survive throughout our entire lives and keep us going, carrying visual signals until our, into our 90s. And so can you tell me about, in your career, what part of this problem have you spent time working on? We started out working on the very basic problem of how the axons find their way. And so one of the first experiments that we did was to sort of devise a labelling method that allowed us to be able to look at how those very, very first axons were behaving and the paths that they were taking. And rather surprisingly, we found that they were incredibly directed. There was very little obvious random growth. They seemed to take the right pathway right from the start and to go to the right place in the brain right from the start. So that was one of the first problems that I looked at as a graduate student. And then I collaborated on that with my long-term collaborator and husband, Bill Harris. And then we, we moved on to when the world of sort of molecular biology started to become available to neuroscientists, we started to look at what molecules are involved in this process and trying to identify which ones are useful as signposts along the route. And that's one of the areas that we spent about 20 years looking at. For example, one we identified at the midline where the axons have to choose whether to grow to the right side or the left side of the brain to set up the right wiring at the optic chiasm. 
And we found through a number of studies that a molecule called Ephrin B pops up right at the chiasm. And this is a signpost that the growing tips of the axons can recognize and use to tell them to go right or left. And then more recently, when I moved to Cambridge in in 1997, our research started to take a slightly different tack, which is that a graduate student in my lab discovered amazingly that these tips of the growing axons make their own proteins. The prevailing view at that time was that all the proteins are made in the cell body and then shunted out to the growing tips or to the terminals in neurons. And what Doug Campbell found was that, in fact, the growing axons has this ability to make its own proteins. And it can do that because the RNA, which is a molecule that carries the messages from the the genes in the DNA and the nucleus out to the periphery, can be read into protein out in the tips of these axons. And this, if you like, gives an extra autonomy to the growing tip of an axon, which of course is a very, very far distance from the master regulator of the nucleus, if you like. So it's developed this kind of autonomy of its own in being able to respond to cues in its environment by then making the correct proteins that it needs right at the time it needs it. It doesn't have to wait for all these transport times and signal times, which would you know, take many hours to go back to the cell body and back out to the axon tip. So this was a, a real breakthrough for us and gave us a new insight into the cell biology, if you like, of how these axons are growing and how they're guided. It's amazing. So it's like the axon tips are little machine factories sort of unto themselves in terms of deciding where they're going to go, what do they need right now, what's the plan next. And I guess, does that tell us something then about how how the axon finds its own actual partner and knows to find, okay, this is my partner versus the one right to the left or one to the right? Yes. I mean, I think that's really key to the whole process. These little, little machines, little growth cone machines come along with the all sorts of variety in terms of the receptors on their surface. So what they can see and respond to basically is all quite unique, depending on which particular cell you are and where positionally you come from in the eye. And as I say, we don't fully understand this because the process is extremely precise and it is extraordinary to me still, how these little growth cones, which are no more than five microns or so across, how they can make all these decisions uh, so autonomously. And do we know what happens if this process goes wrong? Are there any abnormalities or defects that occur in people where this mapping hasn't occurred correctly? Yes, I mean, there are a number of examples within the visual system 
for example, albinism with albino mutations where the wiring goes awry, too many axons cross over at the chiasm. And so too many go to the right side of the brain instead of the left side of the brain, Mm. which ends up causing problems for the animal in terms of interpreting its environment. There's also some evidence that if a molecule called netrin is lacking in mammals, the axons actually fail to get out of the eye. So Mm. they don't they don't exit the eye properly, which, of course, can result in blindness. So. Yeah, it's a very important process that that has to be got right. And actually, it's surprising how well it does, because in most cases, the guidance seems to work accurately. But it's important to realise that if it didn't work accurately, it would be chaos and we would not (laughs) be able to make sense of our outside world. I feel like that's one of my experiences actually studying neuroscience and biology in general, which is that it almost feels like the more you learn about the complexities of all of these processes that are so important, the more it seems just amazing that anything yes. ever happens <laughs> as it's supposed to. Yes, yes, it is. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So is the visual system unique in the sort of complexity of matching up, you know, cells wiring up properly with their partners? Or is this sort of just a good way of studying those questions? And actually, this is happening in the brain or in other parts of the body all of the time? Yes, it's not unique. It's happening in all parts of the brain. It's just a lovely example to use, because at least with kind of visual stimuli, you have to preserve the the spatial information. With something like pain, um, it's sort of equally important. You have to have spatial information coming in from sensory neurons in the body. Something like hearing less so or olfaction, smelling things is still very precise in terms of which cells that they're interested in, but the spatial information doesn't need to be preserved. So slightly different rules uh, occur when those systems develop, but the principles are very similar across all the, the central nervous system. And then with your 40 years in neuroscience, do you have any particular memories or moments that you're most proud of when you look back? It's a that's a that's a sort of difficult question. I don't. There's not one area. I suppose I'm I'm proud of of the various discoveries we've made and the progress that we've made towards understanding the whole problem of wiring and how wiring develops in the brain. I'm also proud of all the people. I mean, I I talk about this as we, but you know, it's all the people that I've worked with. I've worked with some fantastic uh, young collaborators. And I've worked very closely with Bill Harris throughout my career. He's actually, he's written a book called Zero to Birth, How the Human Brain is Built. And it has a chapter in it on axon guidance, which talks about all this sort of excitement and the human stories behind the discoveries, which is kind of fun. And I guess one of the things I'm proud of is that our curiosity-driven research has uncovered really fundamental principles that are leading to now some very relevant therapies and understanding really of neurological disease and in particular sort of neurodegenerative diseases where 
the discovery that local protein synthesis is involved in guidance, we also found that local protein synthesis is important in keeping axons alive Mm. um, throughout the life of an animal. And this is becoming very relevant to neurodegenerative sorts of work. So I guess I'm proud that things have sort of you know, to be able to show that curiosity-driven research can come up with the goods. Like Christine, I see the value in fundamental neuroscience in my own work. It was only by going back to first principles and understanding what the quartet of neurotransmitters that are involved in social connection does that we were able to understand how they underpin our relationships that can last for decades. And that's something that I've seen while speaking to scientists over the last year too. It's often the gradual chipping away at complicated questions that's ultimately led to some of the amazing scientific breakthroughs we've heard about on the show. I sat down with our producer, Eva, to chat through some of our most memorable moments. So, Anna, tell me, what has it been like presenting How We're Wired? It's been mind-blowing. It's been the most amazing, rapid journey through the brain. We've been to Switzerland several times and we've been to America and we've been all over Britain and talked to people from all over the world. And it's been, wow, an absolute thrill of a ride. Do you have any favourite stories or favourite subjects that we've covered? I think if I, if I singled out three, the first one, which I think you probably agree with, is Michelle Rocchetti. Mm. And he was the guy who we met in How We Move. And he was the guy who'd been given the implants to enable him to walk again, having had a a full spinal severance. And he was amazing. His resilience, his positivity, his absolute determination to walk again. Even he got rejected over and over again. And he got there in the end. And... Also, the fact that within all this, this thing had happened to him. He was trying to learn about neuroscience. He was trying to prepare his body to be perfect for the for the surgery itself. He's still helping people. So he's on, you know, on the computer in the evenings, helping people in the community. So for me, he was kind of a life-changing person because it makes you realise what humans are capable of and also how important it is to just keep on going. Absolutely. I think he he was such a standout. We've got a clip here of when we first saw him stand up and walk across his gym. And I honestly get goosebumps when I remember that moment because the amount of effort and time and science and technology and just amazing stuff that has gone into allowing him to do that. It really, it just really was incredible. Okay. And then uh, I just start. Okay. Stand up. If you see this uh, smaller vibration, yes, it's the stimulation. That's the stimulation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they make uh, this small, uh, small shaking. In your legs. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, it's more uh, evident, but after a while, uh, you see that it decreases even more, and uh, I'm uh, stable. And I think also what that shows is sometimes we overlook the complexity of what our brain does because we do it every day. We think, oh, that's just very simple. But something as complex as making a limb move, making it walk, keeping balanced, working against gravity, making sure all your other muscles in your body are holding your body upright. You realize when you look at someone like Michelle and as you say, all the effort, all the physical and cognitive effort going into that, how complicated some of the things our brain has to do are. Absolutely. So do you have any other favorites? The other two are a bit more personal, I suppose. Um, The first one was our program on autism. And that's very personal to me, partly because it was just 
a complete turning about, I think, of what I thought autism was, what I thought the traits of an autistic person were, and it really busted some stereotypes, which I think maybe we all carry about autism. And the work that the scientists, so Florian and Will, who we spoke to on that episode, were doing to really bust those myths and and really pushing the boundaries. But also what I didn't realise at the time is about three or four months later, my own daughter was diagnosed with autism. And so in retrospect, it's become quite an emotional episode for me because they were talking about autism in girls and the differences and how difficult it can be to recognise, but also the work they were doing to try and support girls. So for me, it's become quite an emotional episode. So clinically, you might see that as girls being more likely to have a best friend, more likely to be really interested in the social world at school, the kind of maybe the social hierarchy or the way that the kind of social setup works. And you can kind of see how that, you know, if you held that slightly old fashioned stereotype of autistic people that they're just not interested in the social world, you could see how that could confuse you. You know, if you took your daughter to the GP and you said, you know, she's really anxious, she struggles with change, but she does have one best friend who she sticks to like glue throughout school, that could sort of put you off the scent, if you like. That must be really sort of intense and amazing for you and your family that you had just made this episode all about autism, especially in girls. And then really shortly afterwards, your daughter was diagnosed. Was there any connection there, do you think? I think there probably was. It had never occurred to me before the episode that the the issues that she was experiencing were because she was an autistic person. But when I spoke to Will and some of the points he made about how differently girls present, it, it set a bit of a bit of a hair running, probably. And then when somebody then did come straight out and suggest it to me, I think that door was already open. And I was there saying, yeah, I think this is something we actually have to pursue and try and understand whether she is, in fact, autistic. And the other one that was really personal to me was David Bow and the sanitary pad. So this sanitary pad that could test or tell you if you're going to go into premature labour, you know, a few weeks beforehand. So really helping people to stay out of hospital, not be stuck in a hospital bed. That was me 13 years ago, stuck in a hospital bed, uh, waiting for my daughter to be born. So the idea that you can produce something that looks so simple, this sanitary pad with an implant, but that can change so many people's lives, mean that we can stay out of hospital as women, but also save so much money to the health services who use it. I just thought that was astonishing. And it also showed how sometimes science can seem very isolated and distant and we sit in our labs and we don't see the endpoint. But this was applied science and this was science that was going to actually really change people's lives. I really loved that story as well. And that was part of our very first episode, Building a Brain. And that was also special for me because as a, you know, my background is in developmental neuroscience. That's what I spent my PhD trying to understand. How do you build a brain? And I went along to a ultrasound clinic with Kristen, where she very kindly allowed me to observe and record an ultrasound of her and her baby. And seeing on the screen the brain and the blood moving to fulfill here and there, and the technician talking through the different components and how we can make these judgments, that was really, really special. And then what we do is a measurement of the blood flow in baby's brain. So we'll do that measurement. Good. That's normal. Yeah, because it's meant to be going in fast, supplying the brain. Can you see the different sort of structures of his brain at this stage? Yeah, I'll point them out slightly to you. Okay. Um, This is the baby's brain. It's like you're looking down through. 
So this is the cavum septum. This is the choroid plexus inside. Then we've got the thalamus. Kind of want it to look like a butterfly shape, so it's all symmetrical, which it does. What about you? Favourites? I would say I have a few favourites and probably the episode that's given me the most sort of facts and that I direct my friends to the most often is the How We Love, the episode on the neuroscience of love, which you were our our expert guest for. Um, (laughs) And I really loved that partly because, you know, love, I think, is just endlessly fascinating and underpins so many of our experiences and our, our desires and our society structure and so much, but also being able to kind of look at that, look at different parts of the brain, look at the different hormones, and the different neurotransmitters that have these huge effects on how we build and form relationships. That's, it sort of opened, you know, blew my mind really tr- to understand this very important concept on a scientific level, but not one that's dismissive. It's not like, oh, well, love is just chemicals. It's actually such an intensely complicated process that has so many evolutionary reasons. And ultimately, we don't fully understand it all anyway. So I really loved that one. Let's say you lock eyes across a crowded room with somebody and you get that feeling of hello. And what's happening in the core of your brain is a part of your brain called the nucleus accumbens is lighting up. It's an unconscious part of the brain, but it's rammed full of oxytocin and dopamine receptors. And oxytocin and dopamine are two neurochemicals that are key at the start of relationships. And they work really well in partnership. Oxytocin, it's known as the cuddle hormone, the love hormone. But actually what's important about it is in those very first nanoseconds of attraction, it lowers your inhibition to actually making social contact with someone. And it does that by quietening the fear centre of your brain, which is the amygdala, tiny, tiny little structure at the core of your brain. And we all know when you see someone across the room and there's that nagging little, oh, you know, I'm going to walk across the room, I'm going to declare my undying love, they're going to completely ignore me, I'm going to walk back, it's going to be horribly mortifying. <laughs> that quietens it. So mm. you feel more confident, you feel more okay. Another one of my favourites was one of our earlier focus episodes um, called Why We Forget, which was looking at basically the reasons why our memories fail us sometimes. That was with Daniel Schachter, who's at Harvard. And in that episode, not only did I feel like I learned a lot about the science of memory and why these flaws are important when it comes to society, for example, how we end up with people making false confessions or having false memories, where do they come from? But Daniel at one point actually implanted a false memory in my own brain during the interview. So in this paradigm, you would hear a list of words, and I'll I'll just say a typical list from this paradigm. Candy, sour, sugar, bitter, good taste, tooth, nice, honey, soda, chocolate, heart, cake, eat, pie. So I give you a list like that, and then we wait a few minutes, and I could ask you to recall all the words I just said, or I can give you a recognition test, and I can say, was the word taste on the list that I just said? Mm. And you may or may not remember that. It was. It was (laughs) one of the words on on the list. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was. And then I could say, was the word point on the list just now? No, I don't think so. No. No, you're right. It was not. And what about the word sweet? Yes, I think it was. There's your false memory. No, oh no, there was candy. Okay, I see, I see. See, it's all the words I said, and I bet many people listening to this podcast also thought sweet was on the list, because typically you'll have about 60, 70% of people will say, oh yeah, sweet was on the list, and Mm. many will claim to have 
confident recollection of that. The thing that really surprised me, as somebody who, in my own work, has looked very much at the interplay with, between genes and environment, was in a couple of the subjects we looked at, I was really shocked by how important the environment mm. was. So, for example, in our episode on how we see and looking at sight, and in particular, I'm really short-sighted and my motto has always been, I've come from a family of short-sighted people, but I am staggeringly short-sighted compared to my family. And to be told that actually a lot of it's environmental. And it was the same with our episode on ageing and talking about people with dementia and the fact that actually a lot of dementia is environmental. You know, how we live our lives, the exercise, the food we eat, the, the things we do with our brain, how social we are. And I think sometimes maybe maybe it's because I come from more of a genetics background, but how much how we behave ourselves shapes our brain and the huge plasticity of the brain. So I think that probably surprised me quite Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I felt sort of similarly, actually, in the synesthesia episode. So that was called When Our Senses Intermingle. In that episode, I talked to a synesthesia expert called Jamie Ward. And hearing from him about how, well, actually, it seems like there probably is a genetic component to synesthesia. Everything's so complicated, might be environmental, etc. It's really amazing. You have such a strong phenotype. For example, one of the guests, James, who can taste sounds, to think that you know, there's a bit of that that may be genetic, we may uncover that. But some portion of this is just the the natural plasticity of the brain that's grown in a certain way. Like, that's amazing that that's just sort of a, a thing that can happen. And actually, my most surprising thing I learned in that episode um, was I did ask James, um, can you tell me what does Eva taste like? What does the sound <laughs> Eva taste like? And the answer, he gave a very nice answer. He said, tastes like a cherry bakewell with some custard on it. So I think that's lovely. Oh my God, isn't it? you're like perfect, <laughs> aren't you? I know, so I, I really oh, loved So that was lovely. Something really I know, nice. something really delicious. So um, he said it was a well-balanced taste. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be gutting if you tasted something awful? Well, he said he had lots of friends. That's in the, and we actually have a clip of this too. He's, he's had to make some relationship choices in his life based on the taste of people's names. Well, I was dating girls, for example the taste of their name and their voice in some respects would make, uh, make made all the difference it was part of the attraction you know they, it was just as important to me as them having a bubbly personality or, or being great fun to be with I've had to work with people whose names I've found absolutely revolting with me it's, um, when I hear something or I hear a sound that doesn't agree with me synesthetically it's horrible that the taste and texture is horrible creates a feeling of disgust and that's the best way I can think of it it's just disgust obviously a big part of this series has been speaking to individual people who are affected by the amazing science and the complexities of sort of human life and behavior um have any of those stories stood out to you oh yeah I mean you know we talk about Michelle and we talk about the fact that he's you know, walking again. And he tells us about how it's impacted his life. And I think for me, that's been one of the most emotional aspects of this is to meet the people whose lives have been changed. Because as scientists, we quite often do our science in isolation. It's very abstract, you know, particularly when you're doing a study and the statistics and all that kind of thing. And to actually see that outcome and see the change it brings to people, I think is really emotional. And I know several times we in fact asked scientists, how did you feel when you saw this? And the number of them who said, you know, deeply emotional, yeah. that actually this thing I'd been working on for decades was suddenly in front of me and I could see the outcome of what I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, 
there were also just some of the specific guests really stood out. So Peter, for example, from our site episode, that was very emotional for me actually to hear. And I was in the waiting room and this is a, you know, a young 12 year old boy. Even though I was 12, I wasn't naive. I knew there's something serious, seriously wrong here. Sorry, I get quite emotional just talking about it. Um, so, um, my my father was was called into the, the 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 consultation room. I was waiting for a long, long time. What seemed like a, a an incredible amount of time. It was probably about an hour. My dad came out and he, he was visibly upset. He took me home and he gave the bad news to my mum, um, and they basically told him that. I had this condition. Up until then, we, while this condition ran in the family, we didn't know what it was called. We didn't know why family members were, were losing their sight. But he said, You've, your son's got this condition called retinitis pigmentosa. It means that he'll probably, by the time he's 15, <laughs> it's possible that he'll have lost his sight, he'll be blind. And another really important moment for me, actually, on a broader scale was looking at the stress episode, which was when we're stressed. In that, I spoke to lots of different parents who have been diagnosed with or dealt with burnout. And as I spoke to different people, it was just the same story over and over again. Everyone dealing with the same symptoms, the same problems, the same work structures that put such intense pressure and it just really brought it home to me what a systemic problem this is. Stress is very much a physical reaction for me. This feeling of constant lack of control like over my life and my job. I was often forgetting things, things like my key card to get into the building. Constantly worried of making mistakes. I can even almost hear that my heart is racing and it's also this this sort of antsy feeling that you need to move. Feeling anxious, feeling tired, waking up early hours of the morning. And when I was with my family, I was just snapping and being short with them. There's so much to do in so little time. And I just lost more and more of that control to the stage where I felt helpless and that I couldn't get it back. And then hearing from our scientist, Amy Arnston, about the incredibly negative impacts that stress have on the brain, which, you know, you hear about people say, oh, you know, stress is bad for you. But actually having it laid out, you know, these are the cognitive effects from chronic stress. It was really that actually just changed my own relationship with stress quite significantly. So what do you reckon, Anna? What do you feel like you learned from making How We're Wired? I think I learned the absolute importance of nurturing collaboration because what you realize when you're asking these really big questions is one area of science is not going to answer them and you've often got lots of different types of science all running in parallel all studying the same thing but not talking to each other and what's wonderful I think about the scientists we spoke to is the fact that they talk to each other and they work together and you've got neuroscientists and engineers and IT people and psychologists and you know all these different people who are all working together to answer questions so I found that a real joy to see. Thanks so much to Christine Holt for speaking to us for this episode and to the Bertarelli Foundation for connecting us with lots of the wonderful scientists you've heard across this series. 
They have an incredible program of work, bringing people together to collaborate on some of the toughest questions in neuroscience, highlighting the importance of understanding how we're wired. And finally, thanks to all of you for tuning in. It's been a pleasure. I'm Anna Machen, and this has been Season 1 of How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode. 